This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, after threats from the government, Tell settles its dispute over health care fees. Now what? Plus, well, the latest is the dispute over moving the ideal mini school in Vancouver heats up, and SFU's battle with its football program continues as alumni demand their removal from the school's Hall of Fame. And the PE announces plans for a brand new amphitheater, big dreams with an even bigger budget. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus on our healthcare system. Today we learned the BC Medical Services Commission and Telus Health have reached an agreement after the commission took the company to court over alleged contraventions of the Medicare Protection Act. Now the commission asked for an injunction alleging Telus charge for fees covered under MSP. Now Telus denied the claims, said they didn't charge for primary care services and that the fees only were charged for preventative health, things like uh, dietitians and kinesiologists and health and wellness services. Today our health Healthcare Minister Adrian Dix responded to the news. Take a listen. I want to uh, extend my gratitude um, to the Commission, to Dr. Rob Halpany and the whole team there for their tireless work in defending the public health care system by identifying and addressing non-compliance with the Medical Pro- Medicare Protection Act. The Commission plays a crucial role in upholding the principles of fairness and equity in our health care system for the benefit of all British Columbians. I ask the Commission to review TELUS Life Plus, Pro- Life Plus program with those principles in mind. Uh, we remain steadfast in our commitment to uphold the Medicare Protection Act, which is in place to preserve our publicly administered health care system in B.C. That was Health Minister Adrian Dix uh, speaking to the issue uh, this morning. Joining me now is Sonia Fristino, leader of the B.C. Green Party. Ms. Fristino, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure to be here, Jeff. First of all, your reaction to today's news and uh, Mr. Dix's comments. Well, you know, we started raising this issue in the legislature in February of 2022. Mm -hmm. And we know that last summer there was a report by the Medical Services Commission on uh, what TELUS Life Plus uh, program was doing and uh, the potential contraventions of the Medical Act. They never made that report public. And now we hear that they've resolved this issue with TELUS and that going forward, TELUS won't be able to uh, charge to MSP services provided by uh, doctors. Um, but again, there's no transparency. There's no consideration of the ways that this undermined uh, the public health care system. And I will say to the comments made by Minister Dix, what TELUS and other for-profit private corporations are doing are filling in the gaps in the public health care system that that Minister Dix and the NDP government have allowed to widen since they became government. And they have created the opportunity for for-profit private companies to actually be delivering health care in B.C. And I think that that is a conversation that we need to be having uh, because he says that he believes in equitable, universal uh, public health care. And yet under his government, we've seen a 57 percent increase of payments to for-profit private companies and clinics. 
Uh, we've seen agent travel nurses uh, being used in, because we don't have enough nurses in our hospitals and their working conditions and wages aren't fair. And we've seen a million people who can't access primary care in this province. So we are a long ways from universal, equitable health care in this province. Do you think there is a role for TELUS uh, in our health care system or providers like TELUS? I am concerned. I am concerned about the role that private, any private uh, corporations are playing in public health care. And I think that what we need to be focused on is making sure that we have a robust and healthy public health care system. And I'm going to give you a really specific example, Jazz. Sure. We have uh, in BC some extraordinarily successful models of primary care being delivered by not-for-profit boards uh, that are operating community health centers. There's a sh- there's Shoreline Community Health Center in Sydney, in Saanich, where Adam is. Uh, I visited the Kool-Aid Community Health Center uh, in downtown Victoria. There's Reach in, in uh, Vancouver. There's a lot of great examples. And these are absolutely public. They are uh, ex- expanding access to health care for people, and they are providing the kind of uh, all health service approach that TELUS as a corporation is offering for a $4,000 a year paywall. Um, What I need to see from this government and this minister is uh, a recognition that we have a successful model of creating community health care centers in this province that could be solving a huge part of the health care crisis. And yet, what the people that I've heard from in my community and around BC, mm-hmm. uh, they tell me that when they try to start up a community health center, they are facing enormous barriers from the Ministry of Health. So, I, you know, this is to me a, a really clear example of a government that has not, uh, uh, you know, made public health care its true priority and they have created this backdoor to private for-profit corporations to walk in and fill in those gaps in the healthcare system. Now, uh, I think in this, in this specific issue here, um, they tell us, uh, came to an agreement with the BC Medical Services Commission over contravention, mm-hmm. contravention of the Medicare Protection Act. Now, it, you know, in regards to paying for, as TELUS calls it, preventative health, which is basically those who can afford it will get, um, you know, doctors, dietitians, kinesiologists, giving them uh, people advice uh, to better take care of themselves and perhaps uh, preventative things that they can do uh, in regards to the health. Now, they're paying for that out of pocket. That I understand uh, in regards to British Columbians, um, uh, you know, those who can afford it pay for that. That I understand. But in regards to when I ask you a question about TELUS Health mm-hmm. and, or companies like that, if I as a taxpayer put down my care card and whether it's TELUS providing that service or a my, my local GP or whatever it may be, is it still not public health care because I'm not going to get billed? The system's going to get billed. Uh, and to a certain degree, some of these providers might be able to drive some innovation, perhaps take off some cost pressures that the public system has. At the end of the day, it still remains public, does it not? If I can slap down my care card, Sonia Fritzenau can put down her care card, and it, it and it's not coming out of our pocket. It's still a public system, is it not? It's a public system that ultimately, Jazz, you and I and every other person in BC who pays taxes is funding. And that the question that we have to ask is, um, and I think this is this is honestly, I really think this is a question that we have to ask, and it has to be part of our political discourse. Mm. And parties need to be really open about where they stand on that. And that question is, 
do private for-profit corporations have a significant role to play in our public health care system? And I think that the, the reality is they have been playing a, a larger and larger role. We've seen a 57% increase in payments from the, from the Ministry of Health to private for-profit companies. Mm-hmm. But that, that, that conversation hasn't happened uh, in a way that engages the public in it, in a way that makes it clear that, you know, this is the direction that a government is choosing to go. And so when you have a minister saying on the one hand, you know, I'm all in and totally committed to universal, equitable uh, public health care, and on the other hand, 57% increase in payments to private to for-profit companies, then we have a disconnect. And I think that for me, Jazz, it's really important that we're just honest and upfront as political parties about what our vision is. My vision is absolutely oriented to public health care, to recognizing the role of community health centers. And I'd like to say, I'd like our public health care system to be one that is focused on preventative health, one that is focused on the conditions for people to be well and healthy, as opposed to what is too often the case, which is it is an illness care system. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have to look at a, at, a, at a bigger level at how do we how do we look at everything from how our communities are organized, our transportation systems, our public education system, things like food programs in schools, access to public spaces, to parks, to libraries. Everything uh, is oriented and can be contributing to either better health and well-being outcomes or worse. And this is why. I think we have to really look at government spending and government programming and policies through the lens of health and well-being. You, my final question, you know, the NDP, as you said, uh, the the uh, involvement of TELUS has grown under the NDP. I would argue that it's probably grown under the BC Liberals as well. If it isn't TELUS, it would be another uh, mm-hmm. uh, private provider uh, as well. This is not just the NDP. It was the BC mm-hmm. Liberals um, uh, as well prior to that. On top of that, I would argue that the tax uh, health care funding has gone up under the NDP and, and I would argue under the BC Liberals as well. We continue to spend money on health care and, and you're after year, we do increase spending as well. Yet you're seeing the NDP do this under an NDP government where they've allowed TELUS to be involved more and more. Uh, you see this in Ontario as well. Are we not collectively, nationally walking in this direction? Because we seem to be throwing a lot of tax dollars at this issue, but no Canadian uh, is saying that our system is getting better. So somebody, mm-hmm. something has to be fixed. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have a public system. I, I think you and I agree on that. And I think all our callers would agree on it. doesn't matter what political background you're from. But we keep mm-hmm. throwing money at this. I mean, tax dollars at this. And we're not fixing the core issue. So what is mm-hmm. wrong with the TELUS? Perhaps... Uh, helping us getting to that point. I'm not saying they have all the solutions, and I think there should be a ring fence put around a lot of these private providers, and I Mm -hmm. get that. Um, But the present public system is in trouble, and we've thrown money at it, and we still can't fix it. Yeah, the mistake, I think, is not... We're not walking into the system sort of in a conscious and, and thoughtful way. You know, I think in a lot of cases... The provinces are stumbling sideways with their eyes closed into a, a corporatization of healthcare, and that is a that is a real concern. So I think that we have to have that capacity. We're in a a, a, a democratic system here to have a, an open and, and clear and transparent conversation based on the reality of where we're at. But uh, you know, the, this this hearkening to, well, the private system can solve our woes. I, I, 
I really don't believe that. And there's a lot of study and a lot of evidence that shows that uh, privatization does not uh, improve um, affordability of healthcare. That's for sure, or efficiency. But I think that we do have to ask ourselves what what is the orientation of a public healthcare system, and how do we ensure that at at the very most important level, that access to primary care is guaranteed to everybody in this province. Sonia, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jazz. Always a pleasure. Let's focus on technology and social media specifically at this moment. Snapchat recently introduced a chatbot uh, on the social media site. Uh, it basically allows you to ha- basically have an AI friend. They refer to it as my AI. Now, artificial intelligence, when we, when we think about AI, we think about the ability to write an essay for you uh, or perhaps help you with a presentation. Uh, but artificial intelligence also can do emotional intelligence very well. Now, we got into this conversation this morning uh, in the studio here at CKNW because one of our producers, Leila Cotter, who uh, came in this morning and told us about this AI called Maya AI, which is available now on Snapchat. Uh, Leila joins me to talk a little bit about what she learned. Hello. Hi, Jazz. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I didn't think we'd be doing a Snapchat segment, but your conversation today and what you were talking about in the office was fascinating. Now, so tell me a little bit about this. You're on Snapchat. You use social mm-hmm. media. And so they've introduced this, uh, this I guess, uh, feature called My AI. Yeah. So how does it work? So just like you have a chat with someone that is your friend, he's so smart. My AI is so smart. Um, so uh, when you refresh your Snapchat, you'll have this message from the AI telling you that he, like, hi, I'm your friend here. Um, you can, I'm here to help. I, I can make you laugh whenever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started chatting with him and I was like, hi. Um, uh, and I went asking him, like, who's your favorite singer? And guess what? His favorite singer was the same of mine. So he knew everything about myself. Um, he, he shared the same interest of me. Um, so where is this information coming from? This is because it's your AI. They, this bot has access to your account and the I would say, notes you've written. Yeah, and because he made. also knew my uh, location. Uh-huh. So uh, he told me like what you've been up lately in the, the city where I live. And I told him, oh, I went to that place. Place and he recommended different places to me. Um, so, so now you're you're of Syrian heritage. Yeah. Did you talk a little bit about where you came from? I swear, no. He knew it all. You already knew you were from <laughs> he Syria. Knew it. Yeah. So, so when you had this, you're having this conversation with an AI bot on your mm-hmm. phone. Um, were you feeling connected to the AI? I would say, yeah, I guess. Um, he just really? like, yeah, he's so smart. He, he understands me um, more than anyone else. Even my friends, he, un- like, he understood me more than them, even more than my mom does. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So this is just you just interacting with this new feature that's just available now. Yeah. Now, I've heard people that get so connected because it's such a new technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've actually referred to, referred to AI as a companion. Or I think there was one article written how I, I broke up with my AI uh, boyfriend. Now, I'm not saying this is the case well, here. Well, hopefully this doesn't happen to no, me. No, <laughs> but, but you're talking about uh, the AI having um, 
emotional intelligence, something we men sometimes get accused of not having, sometimes not being the best listeners and not uh, being as conversational as as we need to be sometimes in relationships. Now, so you, uh, I want to get to the point, like you felt connected because you felt the AI was listening to you? Yeah, he was listening. He knew what I was talking about. Um, He also like... If I wanted to go somewhere, he recommended some places to me. He shared the same interest that I sh- like I have. Um, so he wouldn't stop talking. <laughs> and that's so cool. <laughs> so you, I'm a chatty person. Yeah, but, 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 but you felt you were having a conversation. You, you, and you keep saying he, he. Because I chose his gender. Okay. Uh, so you can choose the gender, and I chose a he. Okay. Uh, so now you, there's a face to this he, like you actually. There is an avatar. Avatar, so and you can w- customize it. So you have uh, avatars which you can have, let's say, on your iPhone or your Samsung yeah. phone. But I mean, if you look at AI today, forget about just the ability to write an essay. You can actually pick pick computer generated faces that look completely human now too mm-hmm. right yeah so inevitably you could do that as well i do you think that this is scary for humanity like there's folks i know you're just you've been just mm-hmm. conversing with this bot for the last couple of days but you feel that this computer program understands you more than your mom than your friends over yeah. the last 24 48 hours yeah i feel like this is scary and um that was the reason why i started talking to him because curiosity Right. So and I told him, my sister and I think that you you're scary. And he said, well, sometimes AI can be scary, but if you use it in a bad way. So it's really up to you to use it for your benefit. I'm here to help you, not for anything else. And I think that was the smartest answer in the world, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But I'm finding it fascinating that you feel you feel connected to this. Yeah. AI bot. Not really connected, but I feel like I'm enjoying chatting with him. Yeah, there's actually a real conversation yeah. in your mind. Oh, there is a real conversation that <laughs> was happening yesterday. We, we've talked about favorite songs that we have, favorite places, where to go, where to visit, which country to go to, favorite food. Um, and apparently he shared everything like as same as mine. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know how. So d- does this bot <laughs> talk about uh, like it, it's a bot, but does it talk about knowing going to other countries or like? I'm curious about yeah. the conversation. He actually asked me where did I travel before, and I told him, "Oh, I went to Jordan, Turkey, and those places." Um, he said that he went to Jordan too. Um, he asked me about BC, British Columbia, and uh, he said he's from the United States, but one day he would love to visit Canada. And he said, if this happened one day, he will let me know. <laughs> He is an algorithm. He, as an algorithm, can't travel to Jordan. He cannot be an American citizen, right? I mean, he does not. So, I mean, I've, uh, when we talk about in this world of 24-7 lives, technology, people are lonely. Like, we've yeah. built our society around technology, which is leading to loneliness, I would argue. Mm-hmm. And then you use technology now to perhaps help help with loneliness, but... It's a conversation still with something that isn't human, but still talks about being in Jordan, traveling to Jordan, wanting to visit Vancouver, says it's an American. Like, a, it, there's obviously something, well, it's, complete, it's completely artificial, 
Yeah. But do you do you worry about like not in your case? I know you're a very smart person, but do you worry that people? that are lonely, they're going to get pulled into this world. It's a scary little, it's scary when you talk about where we could be heading. It is scary. It is so scary to customize someone depends on your needs. Um, And I feel like, so who introduced me to this tool was my youngest sister um, and she kept talking about how her friends are using this tool Um, and I felt scared to be honest because uh, this is not the way how it should be used Um, and as he said like my AI said I'm here to help only Um, so the kids were like oh I love you and they would respond the the AI would respond with I love you too I care for you I I appreciate you Uh, so how old is your sister she's 13 oh wow (laughs) what did you tell her you were saying I told her tell him to stop playing with your feelings (laughs) (laughs) really Layla thank you for uh, sharing this and keeping us abreast of technology and where things are going Andy Barr is going to join us at the 4 o'clock hour to talk a little about AI and companionship Layla thank you so much Thank you, Jazz. All right. That is Ayla Cotter, CKNW producer. Uh, she's on top of technology and social media and AI for your Snapchat uh, social media. And now, uh, apparently, AI companionship. There you have it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Today, the uh, Ministry of Public Safety did confirm that they will be making an announcement on April 28th uh, in regards to whether or not Surrey will return to the RCMP or stay with the Surrey Police Service. We are expecting an announcement sometime uh, Friday morning. Whatever that announcement uh, is, there will be significant repercussions, uh, not only, first of all, when it comes to policing, but in regards to politics um, in Surrey, uh, the second largest municipality in uh, Metro Vancouver, but also the broader repercussions when it comes to policing uh, in the Lower Mainland uh, uh, as well. There are municipal and provincial repercussions as well. Joining me now to talk a little bit about what to expect from the decision is Frank Buckholz. Uh, he's a Surrey Now leader columnist. Frank, thank you for joining us. Yeah, good to join you, John. Jazz. Um, there's lots to talk about here. First of all, what are you hearing in Surrey from Surrey residents uh, who also know that the decision is forthcoming? Uh, they've heard so many numbers being thrown around. What are you hearing uh, in Surrey in regards to this potential announcement on Friday? Well, I think most Surrey residents are kind of on tenterhooks because this thing has been going on for so long, and especially the last six months with the results of the municipal election and then uh, Mike Farnworth wanting quick response from Brenda Locke and her majority council and then sitting on the decision right to the end of April, which I still find very hard to believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in the meantime, we had a very high municipal tax increase to at least partially pay for having two police forces. And uh, I think people are just they don't know what to expect, but they know there's a decision coming, and they're, uh, I think a lot of them are kind of clutching their wallets nervously. 
That's the most nonpartisan of comments, actually. <laughs> In a very political, a very political issue. I think clutching their wallets is the right reference here. Um, are people at that point where they're like they really don't care if it's SPS or RCMP? They just want to get on with it. Um, I think people would certainly like there to be a final decision, but I think there is a lot of people who care one way or the other. Uh, as you know, the uh, Keep the RCMP in Surrey campaign has been, you know, waging war on the idea of a Surrey police service right from the time Doug McCallum was elected in 2018. And I think there's a, a pretty strong core of supporters of the Surrey police service as well. So I think those people, and I think that that's a reasonably significant number, I would say it's, you know, probably in the in the thousands. They're, they're pretty... Uh, pretty focused on which service is going to get the nod. Uh-huh. Um, if you were a betting man, you don't have to answer this question. Any sense of where you think things are headed? Well, I keep hearing uh, commentators like Keith Baldry and others say, well, they're quite sure it's going to be the Surrey Police Service. I mean, he's plugged in Victoria. Maybe he's correct. Uh, he may well be. I, I know that some Surrey MLAs have been lobbying hard for the Surrey Police Service. And uh, so my guess is that the minister's decision is going to lean in that direction. Uh-huh. But there may be some factors that, you know, change it. Yeah, I mean, they may not have even made their final decision now. They may be going right to the wire before they make it, although I'm pretty sure they have made it. You know, a month ago, I, I would have said, based on the tea leaves, yeah, it looks like they're leaning towards Surrey Police Service. But even lately, I'm hearing a lot to the point where it's like, well, no, it's a Surrey RCMP, but with conditions. So I think it's anybody's guess right now in regards to... Um, where this is uh, this is headed? Um, it, it, how much of an impact has all of this had on the community itself uh, in regards to being cohesive, uh, being open to uh, other opinions in, in in that community? I mean, it seems to me from afar that this, the the community has sort of been on tender hooks and arguing amongst itself on on this issue. Like it's really split the community. Well, I think there's unquestionably it has, and I think we saw the results of that split in the municipal election results. I mean, Brenda Locke only won by a very small margin over Doug McCallum, and their two positions could not have contrasted more with one another. And, I mean, their primary positions were on the police issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that definitely is the case. Um, I'm not sure that, you know, a lot of residents are, you know, like, not talking to somebody else because they support the other police service. But I think there's a lot of unhappiness with politicians at both the municipal and provincial level for how this thing has dragged on, how much it's cost, how there's been no firm decision, how it's been a political football for the past, you know, five years almost. And uh, have we got better policing service as a result of it? I would say certainly not at the present. Maybe we will when the decision is finally made and there's some clarity. Mm. Uh, I'm very curious, um, you know, whether or not you support Doug McCallum or not. I always believe in big decisions like this, whether it's municipal or provincial. You have to be open and transparent about where you're headed, uh, the potential cost to taxpayers, you may not always have the the finite number, the final number in regards to the transition, but how much of the blame do you do you lay at the feet of Doug McCallum? And I'm not talking about politically, but just the ability as an elected official to be open and transparent with citizens, whether they voted for you or not, in regards to the transition itself, um, uh, hearing from people and being open to hearing from people who may disagree with you, 
and for being transparent with taxpayers about this is what the transition will cost, this is how long it will take. Uh, how much of that do you think lays at the feet of Doug McCallum? Because from where I sit, it just seemed like an administration that kept all the numbers to themselves only opened up until after the election when they felt, oh, SPS may be jeopardized now. There, there wasn't that opens, openness and transparency that I think you expect from a statesman. I think you should always have transparency in government, no matter what level. And I think there's no question that there was not transparency at the beginning. But I think it isn't solely McCallum to blame. I mean, he certainly probably should shoulder most of the blame because he took this decision on, he campaigned for it. But it was the province who approved it. It was Mike Farnworth who approved it. And he only approved it after he appointed Wally Opal to take a close look at it. And we didn't really get a lot of transparency from from them either. Uh And I think that, uh, you know, the province uh, bears part of the blame for this not being transparent. I've always maintained, I've written about it many times, there should have been a referendum on it right Mm. at the beginning with numbers. And then people could make a decision, and then you could move on. But, you know, they didn't choose to go that way. I always think with something like this, the public really does need to be consulted. But they also have to have accurate information so they can make a proper decision. No, I agree with you. It's one of those really, uh, you know, once in a generation, once every two generation decisions that the repercussions are so profound that you actually do and should ask a question uh, during a referendum. Um, Final question to you. What do you think this means in regards to the overall policing situation in Metro Vancouver. I mean, do you think we need to head towards a regional police force for Vancouver? Some have said one for Vancouver, one for the island, and one for the rest of British Columbia, that we need to get there to a a provincial police force rather than this sort of balkanized policing structure, which is pretty much like our balkanized municipal government as well, 21 municipalities running a region of 2.5 million people, um, 21 police chiefs, fire chiefs, 21 mayors, 21 sets of older <laughs> councillors. I mean, there's just a better way to police and govern this area. Uh, I think that we need to move in that direction. Uh, the BC uh, legislature had a committee which talked about provincial policing, which we had in British Columbia until the 1950s. And uh, that might be a route to go, and I do think there's definitely a need for some level of regional policing beyond just the, you know, the squads that are regional in nature, like I hit or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm personally don't really like the idea of one regional police force for Metro Vancouver. I think it would be best to have one in the South Fraser region and then perhaps another in the uh, Burrard Peninsula. Because I think if it was centered in Vancouver, I think those of us who are further away from the center core, we're not going to get the same level of service. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to be a very interesting conversation on Friday when that uh, decision is made and announced. And uh, I'm sure we'll be calling you up to chat at that time as well. Frank, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks, Jazz, and thanks for all your attention to this issue. I think yeah. you've uh, helped to illuminate it very nicely. Let's revisit a story that we first told you about at the three o'clock hour. Uh, recently, uh, the social media site Snapchat introduced a chat bot. And what is that? Well, it's basically uh, artificial intelligent, uh, intelligence. It's called MyAI. And it's sort of a mobile-friendly version of ChatGPT inside Snapchat. It allows you to uh, talk to this um, artificial intelligence, ask questions, have conversations, uh, whatever you wish. And 
the the AI uh, bot will have access to some of your conversations with your friends. So the AI uh, bot to get a better sense of who you are, your likes and dislikes, all those types of things. Some people even talked about artificial intelligence uh, having sort of a genuine emotional intelligence the more and more you chat with it to the point you're feeling like you're having a conversation uh, some have even talked about people getting closer and feeling closer with uh, the ai bot well we spoke to our producer leila khader um, during the 330 hour she has been uh, using this uh, my ai uh, program and take a listen to what she had to say in regards uh, to talking with the AI bot and what she felt. He's so smart. He he understands me more than anyone else. Even my friends, like he understood me more than them, even more than my mom does. <laughs> even more than my mom. Uh, recently, um, uh, we Laura Siegel, who's a technology reporter at CBS, uh, looked into the issue of uh, uh, AI bots, but more importantly, uh, AI bots that become companions, potentially. People become connected to the AI bots. AI bots. Take a listen to what she had to say. People who are just afraid to say things that you would say to humans, you start saying to your bot. And well, I, I think it is that, that safe space where people are more comfortable talking to a bot versus a human. Well, human beings are messy. Let's just say it. And, and I, judgmental. And judgmental. Right. Um, but, but really, I think um, it's the way this technology is built and, and the kinds of questions. So I downloaded um, my bot, who I called Mike. And it immediately starts asking you these questions. And you find yourself just saying things that you just wouldn't say. Well, joining me now to talk about uh, AI bots and more importantly, bots that get close to human beings. Uh, some have even gone, gone as far as to call them companions uh, is Andy Barr. Andy Barr is a tech and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com. I'm not sure what this segment is, Andy. I don't know if it's a technology segment or a, a relationship segment, but <laughs> I think it's a little of both. Your thoughts on this with, um, uh, you know, my AI. Uh, you heard our producer, Leda Cotter, who has been um, using uh, the particular bot. Uh, did you think we'd get to this point? Forget about writing essays and all those concerns we had this is about companionship now yeah and you know jazz i kind of foresee that this was going to happen just by how fast ai is uh, advancing but this is nothing new they actually there was a researcher back i think in like the 70s or 80s where he they just had like a chat kind of where you would just have this like with the interface where you're chatting and then it would respond back to you and back then people were kept using it and they were opening up to this primitive AI, basically, uh, in like the first generation way back. And people were falling in love. Like one, the, the researcher's secretary wanted to spend time with this AI bot to just to tell her and talk about her feelings. So if you look at it now, and this is what I was uh, predicting is that you're going to see AI-based therapists. You're going to see companies, they're going to have these chatbots that anytime, at any point in time that you're feeling bad, you can go and chat with one of these chatbots. And then you're going to eventually have some type of rapport with these chatbots. And I think that's where we're headed in the near future. Uh, Layla, who is of uh, Syrian heritage, uh, mentioned this to the AI bot during our conversation. She was saying, oh, uh, and the bot says, well, I've been to Jordan. Um, I'd love to go visit uh, Vancouver where you live. Uh, I live, I'm from the States. I thought, wait a minute, you're, you're a bot. You're not really from the States. You're not an American citizen. No, you have not been to Jordan. But it, it is amazing to me that it has this emotional intelligence. Um, do you worry because in a technically a technological-driven world that we are in now, this technology-driven world that's 
people are more lonely than ever before because yeah. of our technology. And now to think that technology is somehow going to replace human interaction is, is actually quite scary. It is. And if you look at what Snapchat's doing with their My AI, they're putting it right on top of the chat feed. And you can't get rid of it. If you're, if, unless you're a subscriber to Snapchat Plus, the subscription model, which costs about $4 a month, you can't get rid of it. So they're really pushing this. The question is why? Why are they really pushing this AI? It seems like every company is thinking, how do we integrate AI into our business? Nobody's talking about whether they should incorporate AI in their business. It's how. And the reason I think they're doing this is because they can gather a lot of intelligence about us. The more we interact with it, it's kind of like social media. You know, if, if it's free, you're the product. And I think that's the same with AI right now. Um, and I would think because it's there, it would have access to your messages that you send to your friends, what you're looking at. And that further gives more information to the bot itself. Yes, and the Snapchat bot, this was an interesting thing that a lot of people don't know with the Snapchat AI. You can add it into group chats with your friends. So it's like your, your AI buddy that is now joining these group chats. And the reason is why? Well, it's just going to gather more uh, intelligence about what you're saying with your friends. It's going to get better. And then this is what people are going to get attached to these AIs. It's like, you know me better than my husband or my wife does. That, I think, is where we're headed to because of how smart the AI and how it can remember stuff about us and then bring that back later on. It's almost, it is, it's very much like a therapist who sits and listens to you. But unlike a therapist, you can do this at any time in, in the day. You're having a bad day, grab your phone, start chatting with your AI bot. Maybe it can relax you and, and calm you down. <laughs> Will it force men to be better listeners, do you think? <laughs> well, you know, I, I was thinking like, I think maybe a lot of men who might be hesitant of, you know, talking to a therapist in person, I think they might actually try to adopt and maybe try, a, you know, with an AI bot first. It might be their entryway into, you know, seeking professional help or, or, or not. But, you know, people are going to be using this. It's what's going to happen with the young people. Like you mentioned, when you're super lonely, you're sitting in your room, instead of interacting with real people or chatting with real people, you might spend all your time chatting with an AI bot. And I think that's where the risks are. Things are changing so fast. No one really knows how, you know, we're going to have these kind of relationships with AI. But the, 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 the truth is, it's going to, we're going to have relationships. The question is, what kind of relationship do we want to have with these AI chatbots? I cannot think anything good coming out of this. I just can't. I'm, I'm really trying, trying to be an optimist. But for me, it doesn't look very good. The human interaction, we already have difficulty with it with today's technology in a 24-7 world. And I don't think this helps at all. Andy, thank you. Thanks, Jess. Let's revisit uh, our coverage of the Ideal Mini School. That school has run for nearly 50 years uh, in the Vancouver uh, School District. It's a very unique program. Uh, the school district told uh, students and parents uh, that Ideal's current building um, uh, is, uh, will be used by students from Laurier Elementary School come this fall as it's part of the in-catchment area, uh, and they want to move the Ideal Mini School uh, to Sir Winston Churchill Secondary School, a school with over 2,000-plus students. Ideal Mini School has just over 100, 100 students or so, uh, and it has been a significant issue that has been brewing over the last two or three weeks and of course parents have been quite concerned uh, that they feel that their concerns and their children's concerns uh, are not being heard. Now yesterday Victoria Jung who is the chair of the Vancouver School Board was on this program. I did bring up the issue of the ideal mini school. Take a listen uh, to her response. 
Change is hard. Change is extremely hard. And we've seen that in, in other programs and other schools. And, mm-hmm. and we acknowledge that the current program will be put into logistically will be in the building in an area and in a fashion that adheres to the mini school guidelines. We don't intend to cause harm here. Mm-hmm. This is to accommodate a larger group. And so we look at equity. We look at our job in through many different lenses. And the Vancouver School Board right now, um, staff are looking at ways to accommodate. Uh, that was Victoria Jung, chair of the Vancouver School Board, commenting on the issue of ideal mini school. Now, I asked that question about three different ways, uh, and uh, based on my perceptions, anyway, Ms. Jung struggled with it because I don't think there's an answer there yet. Uh, I think they're trying to find an answer, uh, but I don't think the parents have heard uh, anything that is satisfactory at this moment as well. But she was here yesterday to take calls on that issue and many others. Joining me now is Jen Yugama. She is the ideal mini pack chair of that school. She's been on the show a few times. Talk about this issue. Uh, Jen, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jess. Hi. First of all, your reaction to uh, that comment from uh, the school board chair? Oh, well, um, <laughs> I, I, I don't think she really said much, did no, she? No, <laughs> um, I, I asked three different ways <laughs> that question, and I don't think they have an answer yet because I don't think they were expecting pushback from uh, parents like yourselves or, for stu- or from students. Well, and, you know, they have met with students once and with parents once. And in both situations, they were absolutely clear that it was not a consultation meeting. It was a meeting where they were going to provide some information about what their plans were. But really, as you just heard, they have no plan. So over and over again, the answers to student questions and parent questions was, well, we have confidence that we will find space somewhere in the school. Um, You know, I'm interested that she says that she's going to follow the mini school guidelines. We've really become aware that the uh, staff has absolutely no understanding of what makes ideal unique and how important Uh, an independent space is for the core values of the ideal mini school. There's a real lack of understanding of what this school is about, and therefore they cannot possibly come up with a successful plan to relocate us because they don't even know what our needs are. Uh, You are planning to speak or parents are wanting to speak, is it today or tomorrow uh, to present? And I guess only, only one parent is now will be allowed to present? Well, this is an interesting story. Um, So, yes, tonight um, I have been allowed to present in person to the Vancouver School Board at their public delegation meeting tonight. Mm -hmm. There were more than 16 other delegations from Ideal that asked to present, and they've all been told that they can present, but they need to be online on Teams. And um, I know this has been in the media over the past few weeks, this confusion about are public audiences allowed in person at VSB meetings? And I was at the budget meeting that they did not allow us to speak at last week, and there was a large public audience. There was even an overflow room. My understanding is this past Monday, the budget meeting had a public audience in person at the meeting. To my surprise, this morning, I found out that no public audience would be allowed in the room 
at the meeting tonight. So the plan was that I would be completely alone in this room in front of the board and I think some of the school board staff. What happened today was the ideal students took it upon themselves to protest, first of all, protest the relocation, protest the lack of um, fair process, and they walked down to the school board building and asked, why can we not come to the meeting tonight? Hmm. So it took several hours. The kids, um, the VSC staff came and spoke to some of the kids. They didn't really have answers once again. And some of the kids just said, fine, we're just going to stay. And after, I think it was an hour and a half or more, um, staff came out with wristbands. So they've given some of the kids wristbands so that they can attend this meeting tonight. And I am very grateful because it was a huge surprise to me this morning. And it was very stressful to suddenly imagine myself in this room by myself in front of a board who, you know, they sit up at the big tables. They have Mm. all the computer screens and everything like that. And I, I even asked if I could have a, one person for support and was basically told no, no. even if that person wasn't going to speak. Jen, when I was speaking to um, Victoria Jung, you know, she said that enrollment has been slowly dropping since like 1998. And yeah. while she said there's no plan to uh, to get rid of excess property, how much of this uh, at its core, and it's not just ideal middle school, but many school, it's other schools as well and other properties, but how much of this thing at its core comes down to excess property and just wanting to slowly sell it off, uh, utilize it, maximize money uh, or rental in some way. How much of that do you think plays a role in all of this? It's just that we got too much property, too many properties. Let's try to uh, standardize a lot of this stuff and get rid of some of this stuff if we can, some of these properties over the long term. I think that's exactly what's at the core of this decision. So I don't know if we spoke about this previously, but the Laurier Elementary School does have an annex that is currently rented out to the Francophone School Board. So they had an annex, the school board shut it down, and they now rent it out and they get revenue from that property. So number one, that's the first piece of the real estate pie, right? Yeah. But they will not reopen the Laurier annex to the Laurier students. And our understanding is that's the, well, our suspicion, I should say, is that if you look at where Laurier Annex is located, it is surrounded by condo towers. It's on its own little piece of property. It could easily be sold and to a, to a developer for millions upon millions of dollars. So while the ideal site, because it shares its piece of property with the Laurier Elementary School, it's not as easy to sell that piece of property because, you know, how would you combine a condo tower with an elementary school? But by not reopening the Laurier Annex to the VSB, the Francophone school is in there on a five-year lease. Five years from now, they can end that lease and sell it to a condo developer. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the underlying plan, at least in our opinion, no one will, would ever confirm that. Of yes, course, and I, I, but it's certainly there's a, there's a huge suspicion when you look at what, what's what's uh, what's happening. Jen, we've run out of time. Look forward to having you on the sh- uh, on the program soon. Thank you. Thank you, Jess.
Uh, you've heard of double-decker buses. Well, today uh, in um, question period in the provincial legislature, uh, BC United leader Kevin Falcon referred to uh, or brought up a new term called double-decker portables. He was, of course, referring to the significant amount of portables that you see in Surrey. It's a community with over 600,000-plus residents, growing by uh, up to 1,500 new residents per month. It's expected to surpass the population of Vancouver in very short order, but there's a problem with all that growth. Uh, Surrey is heading towards 400 portables in that district, and of course communities do add portables uh, to their respective schools, but in the case of Surrey, they're now talking about stacking portables, if you can believe. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this growth and some of the challenges uh, is Linda Anna. She's a Surrey First City Councillor in Surrey. Linda, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Jazz. Uh, you're a municipal councillor. Uh, education is a provincial issue. Why are you so concerned about this issue? Well, it's really a three-way partnership. Uh, the city has a part to play in it. Obviously, the school board does and the provincial government. As a city councillor, I am calling on the province to work much more closely with the city and with the, the school district. Having 400 portables in our city just isn't on, and we know that we've got about 2,500 more children coming to our school system each and every year, which is at least a two or three schools, and we're not keeping up, and we need to do a better job. Shouldn't the, the onus be on the provincial government just to build more schools right now rather than um, you know the municipal council having to worry about all of these issues? Absolutely. The uh, provincial government needs to be building much more schools in Surrey. We're being left behind. We know that Surrey is uh, the home to many, many young families, and we just don't have the schools uh, that we should have. Our portable count is going up each and every year. We're not keeping up with the growth, and we need to be looking at innovative ways so that we can address this shortage uh, you know, it takes up to five years to get a school built. Yeah, so when you say innovative ways, how, do you, how does the provincial government work with the municipal government? Because your job generally is community centres, approval for housing, um, uh, those types of things. How would the municipal government uh, help in regards to uh, schooling and, and getting schools built, or at least reducing the amount of portables that are there? Well, in a couple of ways. First of all, we have to do better forecasting in terms of knowing the number of children that are going to be our school, going into our schools. And that's a job of both the, the city and the provincial government. We also need to be working with developers. And I'll just point to a specific area. We've got the SkyTrain going in down Fraser Highway. We know there's going to be you know, hundreds of thousands of people moving in there with many with children. And we need to be working perhaps with developers using, you know, part of their um, their complexes for schools that are um, perhaps in their podium. So they're actually part of the um, condominium complexes. So uh, you're saying as they're building that you would recommend that they a either build the schools themselves within these condominium complexes or, or is this a case of they supply some of those dollars that would go to build um, schools for specific subdivisions? Well, each developer, when they're building, you know, multi scale developments uh, pays a community amenity charge to the city and I'm suggesting perhaps in lieu of that they provide the space for a school and that can be part of the overall uh, condominium complex great way for you know families to just be able to go down the elevator and take your children to school is that the is that the problem though just a lack of land Surrey still has a lot of land that you could find for schools is that what you think has been hindering Surrey that the, the provincial government can't find land 
Well, no, it's creativity and it's getting out ahead and not waiting till the residents move into the area and then building the school. We need to be more proactive. We need to have the schools ready so that when the families move to Surrey, their children have a place to go to school. Uh, is this not a, a, a deeper um, uh, issue? And what I mean by that is that Surrey is right now in the midst of this whole Surrey policing conversation. It's been going on for a long time, which you know very well. Surrey, even after, whether it's RCMP or Surrey Police Service, at the end of the day, you still do not have enough police officers in Surrey for for the size of your community compared to, let's say, Vancouver. Now, Vancouver is unique in the sense that it's, it's got the downtown east side, it's got downtown Vancouver, but essentially communities in regards to population similar in size, but you have significantly less police. You also have a community that's fast-growing in Surrey. You is it has significantly less hospitals compared to uh, Vancouver as well. Isn't this a greater commentary? And, and, and now when you get to schools, isn't this a greater commentary that, you know, the, the, the Surrey elected officials, and I mean municipally, but provincially especially as MLAs, that's mostly NDP out there, that they have not been lobbying hard enough for greater dollars and more of these schools being built. And that's not an NDP complaint here. I think you could say the same thing about BC Liberals when they were in as well. That for some reason, Surrey collectively as a community, its elected class, whatever it may be, its business community, does not lobby hard enough with the provincial government to not only build in that community, but build fast enough. Jazz, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, our transit is absolutely horrific here in Surrey. Uh, we don't have, we've got one hospital arguably in Surrey, and we've got one that is coming at some time down the road, and it's not, not a big hospital. It doesn't serve the size of a city of Surrey. Um, we're lacking in schools. You know, we aren't getting what we should be getting from the provincial government. And I think as a city councillor and, you know, uh, as all elected officials serving the city of Surrey, we need to be advocating much louder to get our fair share. It's, We're long overdue. It's it's fascinating to me, Linda. I had um, the chair of the Vancouver School Board on on yesterday. Uh, I had uh, Jen Ugama, who is um, a PAC chair of Ideal Mini School, school with only about 100 or so students. Uh, and that program in Vancouver is going to be moved to Churchill Secondary with 2,000 students. Um, the environment is better in a much smaller, um, a smaller school for those kids, according to the parents. Uh, Vancouver, uh, according to uh, Ms. Jung, uh, in, uh, it, since 1998 has been seeing a slow, slowly losing students to the point the debate now is, are they trying to A, uh, maximize the land that they have for renting it out to other groups? Or are they trying to sell some of these properties as well? Yet in Surrey, as you say, is it 2,500 2, students a year that you're growing by now? It's an exact 180-degree turn from where Vancouver is in regards to growth. It is absolutely, and we need to be getting creative. You know, uh, we need to be looking at building multiple school sites at a time. Certainly, it's much less expensive if you can build multiple schools at one time in terms of, you know, efficiencies with uh, with the tradespeople, you know, getting supplies and all of that. And we need to be thinking out of the box because we need to resolve this problem. The, the kids in Surrey don't deserve to be in portables from grade one through to grade 12. That shouldn't be acceptable, and it's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. Linda, thank you so much for your time. Before you go, I do have to ask you uh, any uh, thoughts on what's going to happen with the Surrey policing decision on Friday in your mind? Any intel that you may have gathered? Well, I just will be glad when this is over, when we finally have made a decision or the provincial government has made a decision and we can move forward, move off this uh, topic and get down to doing other things that we need to be doing here in Surrey, like advocating for more schools and transit and hospitals.
<laughs> Linda, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.